0: This is the Trails Church podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. The book of Exodus has long been called the gospel of the Old Testament. It truly is a story of good news from long ago, of how God redeemed his people from captivity in Egypt, in order that, and this is critical, they might serve and worship him alone. That's why God is doing all of this. When we first set our course through this book, I explained that its plot line is probably best traced by geography. Because with each change of scenery, we learn something new about both God and his people. So the three major scenes of Exodus are Egypt, the wilderness, and then finally Mount Sinai. These first 14 chapters we have covered contain the story of Egypt. God led his people to Egypt initially as a place of provision, and peace. But over time, a ruthless pharaoh came into power who exploited the Israelites to advance his political agenda. After 400 years of living in slavery, God raised up a deliverer named Moses to lead his people out of captivity and into freedom. This is where the title of this book, the way we know it, the Greek word, Exodus, which means going out or departure. And through this first section of the book and where it ends, culminating today, we've seen that while God's people are utterly incapable of saving themselves, He is the God who redeems. So on our journey, we've witnessed some unforgettable scenes. I just want to rehearse those for us. God has spoken to us through the pen of Moses. We saw a refugee baby hidden in a basket by the faith of a mother, sent floating down the Nile River. Remember those two courageous labor and delivery nurses who stood toe-to-toe with the most powerful man on earth in order to save unprotected, unborn lives? How about Moses meeting with God at a burning bush? Do you remember how remarkable that was? Yahweh sending upon Egypt 10 creation altering, sky darkening, locusts swarming plagues, climaxing with the angel of death. And finally, a remarkable pillar of fire was sent to the Israelites to symbolize God's presence among his people. Last week, we explored one massive lesson that the Israelites must learn in the school of faith the Lord will fight for his people. This was illustrated as the people of God face a seemingly impossible situation, camped between their enemies and the sea. And Yet it was there, hemmed in by danger on all sides, that the Lord would bring them to the end of themselves and teach them to trust in him alone for their salvation. In Exodus 14, verses 15 to 31, where we land today, the children of Israel walk a Miraculous trail, trails, church, trail, you see, thank you, Uh, from heavy burdens and bitter bondage in Egypt into a new freedom as the people of God. The exodus exodus of Israel is more than a one-time event. It became the defining event of the Old Testament and also a paradigm For all of God's redeeming acts to follow, what we'll do is walk this Red Sea Road together and see how this incredible story of salvation and judgment reveals the glory of God. And for all of you Ellie Holcomb fans in the room, yes. Yes is the answer. For those of you who have no idea who Ellie Holcomb is, she had a record in 2017 called Red Sea Road. And so those of you who already love her music are thinking, is he? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I got that from Ellie. So, is that okay with everybody? Perfect, let's move on. So, I want to outline our text with four headings. One, the glory of the Lord is promised, verses 15 through 18. Second, the Lord saves his people, verses 19 through 22. Third, the Lord judges his enemies, verses 23 through 28. And finally, verses 29 through 31, the glory of the Lord is magnified. So that's where we're headed. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand once more as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus 14, verses 15 to 31. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through to the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. "...and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces." And threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. On this first step toward this Red Sea Road, the glory of the Lord is promised. Our passage opens with the Lord speaking to Moses once again, which let me remind you is no small thing. God speaking to Moses. This time he's asking, why is Moses crying out to him? Now that statement seems strange to us at first glance. We saw last week in verse 10, it was the people who were crying out to God, not Moses. So what's happening here? We see Moses is the appointed mediator between the people and God. We're going to explore this theme in the future, but for now, just note that God is asking Moses why the Israelites are crying out because... He represents the people. Now, earlier in the day, the command of God was for his people to do three things. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of God. Now the time of that salvation had come. God tells Moses, go forward. It's time to move. Well, there's only one deep, expansive, daunting problem. Forward lies the Red Sea. Imagine just how impossible this may have sounded. It was one thing to turn the Nile River into blood, but you're telling us to move forward, walking straight into the watery grave of the sea. But God doesn't leave it up to to the people to decide how this would work. God gives clear instructions, telling them, Exactly what to do. He tells Moses, stretch out your hand, lift that staff. Remember, this is not just the staff of Moses. This is the rod of God that he holds in his hand. And as he does this, the people march through on dry ground. That's stunning. You and I have never seen anything like this. They had never seen anything like this before. Yet this was God's miraculous plan of salvation And he tells Moses here in these verses, he he was going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they would pursue the Israelites, and that in the end, God would get glory over Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and notice, even over their chariots, over their F-350s, God will get glory. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. One surprising feature of this passage is that we might expect God to say that he would get glory through saving his people. Wouldn't you expect it to say that? And In some scriptures, that truth is presented. That comes into focus, but like Psalm 106, verse 8, sings of the Red Sea crossing, and it highlights this. God saved them for his name's sake. That's for His glory, that He might make known His mighty power. So why did God do this? For His glory in saving, but here what comes into focus is not the saving piece, but judgment. The ultimate reason for every act of God is His glory. The ultimate reason for every act of God is His glory, yet... Here, he will not be glorified in saving the Egyptians. They will not be converted and place their faith in Yahweh. No, he will be glorified as they confess in their dying breath who Yahweh is and that he fights for his people. He gets glory over them when they acknowledge him as the Lord. As we think about this passage, I'd like to offer you a helpful phrase that my friend Jim Hamilton uses to summarize the whole story of Scripture, I think it helps summarize what we find here in this text, a picture of God's glory in salvation through judgment. I'm going to repeat that phrase. I think this is so important for us to see. God's glory in salvation through judgment. So let that just kind of rattle around in your thoughts as we make our way through the rest of this passage. First, the glory of the Lord is promised. With our second step, we see how the Lord saves his people, verses 19 to 22. The script is written, the stage is set, the cast is in place, and now we will see the unfolding of God's salvation to his people. We've been waiting for months for this. Here we are. In this scene, we're given important details of how God does this. In verse 19, the pillar of cloud and fire moves from in front of them to behind them. This cloud, which we saw last week, represents the burning presence of God in the midst of his people. Here we see it not only would guide them, but it would guard them. The presence of God is both the guide and the guard of his people. This cloud's referred to multiple ways in this passage today. The angel of the Lord, it's called, the pillar of cloud. We'll, we'll see in a few verses. God himself is said to anthropomorphically be looking down on his people from this cloud. Now, these interchangeable descriptions confirm what we learned last week about this pillar. This is a theophany. Do you remember the definition of a theophany? We can remember it like this it's a visible picture of the invisible God. Visible picture of the invisible God. So, now it's difficult to translate what Moses is saying with this phrase, and there was cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. Depending on what translation you're reading, it may say, Various different things with that verse. What it seems to be saying is that for the Israelites, there was... Hey, kids, listen. There's like a divine nightlight through the night. That's what this is like. A divine nightlight through the evening that warmed and comforted them. But to the Egyptians, it was complete darkness. Do you remember the ninth plague we looked at some weeks ago, in which all of Egypt was covered by darkness, but... What was in Goshen? Light. Light. The light of the presence of the Lord is with his people. Next, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by this strong eastern wind. And so that this is not lost on us, let's place geographically where the Israelites are. They are on the eastern shore, when an eastern wind comes, if you're on the east coast and a wind comes from the east, where are you looking? Into the ocean, right? And so if this wind starts in the east and starts moving toward you, the waters don't part right where you're standing. Where do they part? On the other side. And so the people of God are, are uh, welcomed, forced to experience patience, to silently and patiently wait for the Lord to deliver them and then finally it made its miraculous way to their feet with this wind the lord paved a way for his people to go this is a daunting phrase into the midst of the sea on dry land those things don't go hand in hand do they so god supernaturally formed a walls of water on each side so think about like walking through the aquarium at shields Only those glass walls aren't there. That's a little bit of what this would be like, I think. Old men whose feet had never stood outside of Egypt. Young mothers carrying babies who wouldn't grow up to be slaves under Pharaoh's reign. Children, I'm sure running and dancing and I mean, if I'm there, I'm putting my hand in that wall of water. Anybody else? They walked through the sea on dry ground. Matter of fact, the word used here is exceedingly dry. So, like, without the hint of moisture, like in Texas when we have weeks of drought and the earth begins to crack. Dry ground. In the midst of the ocean. Can you imagine that? The Lord saves his people. It's fascinating how Moses uses his words here to present the Exodus account as a sort of creation of its own. This is, in a way, the creation of the people of God. And I think Moses is doing this. By repeating creation words that he wrote in Genesis one and two, the first time he used that phrase "dry land" was in Genesis one nine, where God separated the dry land from the waters of the earth. Same word. Now we see the Maker of dry land causes it to appear, to appear, in order to pave a way of salvation for his people. How about the wind? that drives back the water in verse 21. This is the Hebrew word ruach. Say that with me, ruach. You're brave if you get that guttural thing at the end there. That word is translated wind or breath or spirit. Moses first used that word in Genesis 1:2, where the ruach, the wind, the breath of God, the spirit of God, hovered over the waters in the making of creation. Here, the breath of God parts the waters so that his people might be set free. You want to see it somewhere else? Um, Genesis chapter 8. The same idea of God creating while saving is continued in the story of Noah. As Noah and his family sat atop Mount Ararat in the ark of God's salvation, the Lord sent a... Wind, breath, ruach, over all the earth. And the waters receded, recreating a new world for his people. In Exodus 14, the Lord creates a way for his people to be recreated in a new and glorious sense, free from slavery to serve him alone. God is creating the salvation of his people. Now, it would be difficult for those of us who have known the salvation of the Lord to hear this account of God saving his people against the backdrop of the language of new creation without our attention turning to Christ. And rightly so. Like Israel, we were hemmed in by, on all sides by our sin. With no way of escape. It was in our helpless condition that Christ, the mediator between God and man, stretched out his arms upon the cross, taking the punishment of our sin. It was Christ who parted the waters that separated us from God. Christ who tore the veil between us, sprinkling us with his own blood that we might come to God. It was the Holy Spirit of God that has breathed in our lungs new life. And we who were once slaves to sin have been set free. Let me use different language. We've been recreated, remade, born again, see John 3, as sons and daughters of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I have known a true and better exodus. What do we do with that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord this morning that the Lord saves his people. Praise the Lord that he has miraculously saved you. Saving you is nothing short of a miracle, by the way. With this next step in the story, the Lord judges his enemies. Verses 23 through 28 The judgment, which began with this condition of hard-heartedness, now is seen in their actions as the Egyptians chased the Israelites into the midst of the sea. The problem with this is that the only thing that made that possible for the Israelites was the Lord was on their side, which is not the case for the Egyptian army. God's hand against Pharaoh and Egypt was demonstrated in dramatic fashion that we saw during the ten plagues, here it would be known once and for all. Guys, it's no small detail that Moses includes the time of day. You see that? The morning watch. The morning watch concluded around daybreak, when the Egyptian god Ra was believed to return from the realm of the dead each night, and to experience a rebirth each morning. Ra was the God who was supposed to have the power to save the Egyptians. Moses tells us, as the darkness of night begins to lift, and this new day begins, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, looked down on the army of Egypt in an act of judgment. The Lord is showing his power over Egypt, over Pharaoh, over their silly chariots, and over the gods of the Egyptians. And in a divine reversal, now they are the ones trapped, hemmed in on all sides by walls of water that the Lord has built. There's no way of escape. Yahweh commanded Moses to use his staff to return those waters to their place. Who can command the waters where to go? The Lord Almighty. The army of Egypt who once drowned the children of God are now drowned by God in righteous judgment. And we think all the way back to the first question that Pharaoh hisses, who is the Lord, that I should obey him? The Lord answers that question here. He is the Lord who is righteous in his judgment. So before we move on from this account, let's for a moment just stop here with sobriety and think about the serious condition of the Lord looking down on his enemies. Who are the enemies of God? When we think about Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, it's very easy for us to say, Oh, those are the enemies of God. But the Bible's not that sanitary and protective of our uneasiness. Anyone who has sinned against God and refuses to kneel before him as king before Christ as king is an enemy of God. Why is that so? Because like Pharaoh, each of us are born asking in our hearts, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And for those who live and die in this life as the enemies of God, this picture is one of divine judgment that is meant to be a warning because this is what awaits you apart from God's salvation. My friend uh, Matt once said this, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. I'm a little slow, so I'd read that a few times. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> born once, die Twice, that means we're born into sin. We will die both in this life and in the continual death that awaits you in a real hell separated from God. Born twice, die once. That means if we've been born physically, that's the first birth that he has in view. But there's another birth. There's another recreation. This is the birth that comes only from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So how do you escape the second death? How do you escape an eternity in hell? By acknowledging your sin in front of a holy God. By repenting of that sin and by believing in Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. This room is full of people who were once dead in sin and now alive in Christ. And today, that can be you. I pray God's word does its work in you, that it exposes the condition of your heart, and that you would not die in your sin, but it would lead you to the grace of Christ. With our final step on this Red Sea Road, the glory of the Lord is magnified. Verses 30 and 31. Okay, so let's just get our bearings again. The Israelites are safe on the other side of the sea. Their ancient enemies defeated. And the seed of the serpent has been crushed by the seed of the woman. But it was all the Lord's doing. The Lord did it all. The Lord saved Israel that day. What an all-inclusive, definitive, perfect statement. I've just been saying it all over, Uh, again and again this week. The Lord saved Israel that day. In order for us, to, I think, to get a sense of the resolution found in these final two verses, we have to look at other earlier parts of this chapter. The promise in verse 14 that God Would fight for his people is now recognized as a fight that has been completed. You want evidence? There are bodies of Egyptians washing up on the shore. And notice there are two ways Moses describes the people they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Let's just think of those two things for a moment. The fear of the Lord. The paralyzing fear that the Israelites had back in verse 10 as they heard the hoofbeat of Egyptian horses and the clatter of Egyptian chariots is transformed to a different kind of fear. One that has been transformed into a peaceful, life-giving fear of the Lord. This is not a crippling fear that makes us real from God. It's a holy, reverential fear by which we draw near to Him. Proverbs 1 says that this kind of fear is the beginning of wisdom. So you want wisdom in your life? It starts here, step one, fear the Lord. And second, they believed in the Lord. Guys, this scene is so bright. It's filled with color and music, and next week music, and such joy. It's like a fuller picture of what we saw back at the end of chapter 4. Do you remember there where their hearts were overflowing with love and acceptance toward God and his message? Well, this time they stand on the other side of the sea, free from bondage, saved from Egypt, and they believed. The writer of Hebrews said that they did all of this by faith. The same faith that was attributed to Abraham by which he laid hold of the promises of God. The things unseen. They believed. And we live in a culture that attacks belief from every angle it can. Especially belief in this book. The miracles recorded in scripture have been attacked by the enemies of God for a long, long time. There's a popular story about a little girl in a Sunday school class who was taught this account. I think it might be apocryphal, but I've heard it told like 10 different times in different ways. So I'm just hoping this is a true story. If it's not, it should be one. So the Sunday school teacher finishes the lesson telling the children of what God had done and saving his people, and she exclaims, Praise the Lord! God delivered his people through the deep waters. What a miracle. But the Sunday school teacher didn't believe that. And so he tries to unravel her understanding from latching on to the miraculous. And he tries to re-explain it. No, that's that's not what happened. It's not a miracle. The people were simply in a marshland, not actually in a sea. And uh, this account we read is just the tide uh, which was there, now washing out so the Israelites can go through, and then the tide comes back in. There are, there are reasonable scientific ways to explain what happens. And that's, that is true, actually, but it's just not enough. And so he explains that what really happened is they crossed in about six inches of water, and then the tide came back in. And she says, "Praise the Lord!" God drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) See, we believe in this book. And we believe it is a miraculous book, filled with the miracles of God, and that our lives as his people are nothing short of miraculous. What he has done in you is nothing short of miraculous. Look at the salvation of God and believe that this morning. The Lord kept his word. His glory was made known to his people in their salvation. His glory was made known to the Egyptians in his judgment. And here we sit thousands of years later telling the story of God's glory in salvation through judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord did for his people one day, long ago, on a Red Sea Road. Let's give thanks to him for it. Father, thank you for the salvation that you've given to your people. Thank you for the hope that we've been given in Christ, the true and better Exodus, the one who has rescued us from. Sin and death, and brought us to a kingdom of life and light. Let us look to these people as an example, as you teach us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to learn from their example, here in a positive sense, later in many negative sense, but here to like our forebears to walk in the fear of the Lord and to believe in you and in your servant, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.